on this episode of Skeptic Co. A show about being right. Yeah, but I wasn't. Am I wrong? Are we going to split hairs here? No. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? No. Am I wrong? That's right. A show about being right. Explain to me, since you're in that camp, how do they explain away the, the gain-of-function research? No idea. I'm, I hope that the audience listening to this has gained some value from what I have said, but I would be going into areas that I just don't have a clue about if I even went there. Honestly. Rationally, logically, how does that make any sense to you? I don't know. I just can't. Like, because two years ago, the whole no virus thing at all didn't make sense to me. So I, I just don't know. That first clip was, of course, from The Big Lebowski. And the second was from this spirited dialogue I had with Richard Cox from the Deep State Consciousness podcast, all about the no virus thing. Stick around. This is a classic Skeptico. No two ways about that. Welcome to Skeptico, where we explore controversial science and spirituality with leading researchers, thinkers, and their critics. I'm your host, Alex Akaris, and I guess I ought to own it. I like being right. Here's my interview with Richard Cox. So uh, I'm just rolling, but I'm not sure quite how we should do this. So I'm kind of open to any any suggestions you have. And I mean, I can, yeah, whatever you think. I can start it. You can start it. Well, I suspect you're looking to understand how I've jumped the shark so to speak, how, how I've come exactly. to a place which seems very irrational to you, right? And and what would be good to come out of this, I suppose, is not, I think, you know, to decide whether viruses exist or not might be a little ambitious for the two of us sitting here, but to decide what a sensible way to ask these questions are and how we can come to see that differently and what, why this division arises and other things like the role of then psyops and that kind of thing. And, and what do we do about that? That might be an interesting way to go down. Yeah, you know, I was uh, I was actually talking to uh, Rob from the Skeptical Forum a couple of days ago, and I was saying, mm. you know, this turns out to be kind of to me, and it has been uh, like it's made me rethink everything about Skeptico. <laughs> it's made me rethink about all the interviews I've done over the years and all those factors of psyop because you know you have jumped the shark here i mean you've left the logic of your own shows we both interviewed this guy michael wallach who made this film the viral delusion to me when i interviewed the guy i was like this no virus stuff is absurd and and my goal in the interview was just to show how absurd it is by using an extreme example of like, okay, so then you guys think like rabies doesn't exist and dogs don't really start foaming at the mouth because they have this viral infection that's been known for hundreds of years. So I was going to the absurd, right? To kind of show how crazy this thing is. And uh, as you know, from that show, when I sent him the email, I was like stunned because he emails him back and goes, yeah, you know, I made up this fictional story about my dog who who had rabies when I was a kid. And he goes, yeah, man, your dog didn't have rabies. Your dog must have worms because there's no such thing as rabies. Rabies isn't a disease. It, it isn't a viral disease. It doesn't. And I was just like, so I did the show just to kind of show how these guys have worked themselves into this crazy space. And then the really the next level stuff is is that potentially a psyop to kind of cover what's going on with COVID? 
But then lo and behold, you do the interview with Wallach and you start saying the same thing. Maybe rabies doesn't exist. I mean, do you share that? Do, do you like say that to people in the real world outside of this echo chamber that we're in? Do you ever say that, that, hey, I'm coming to think that maybe rabies isn't really. Oh, yes, I, really... I did a public showing of one of Michael's episodes of episode two of the viral delusion just a couple of nights ago. But see, I think it gets hidden in there, right? So you're willing to share with people that you think maybe rabies doesn't exist. Yes. And you're willing to share, like you're open about the fact that you're not sure that COVID is a viral disease. Yes. And that the the flu that you've gotten since you were a kid, you know, sometimes and you, you go to the doctor and they say, well, I'll give you antibiotics. No, not for this. You know, you got to beat it yourself with like all that is out the window. Well, out the window is strong. What I'm saying is it should be on the table. Like I think the no virus camp, I've transitioned in my mind from hearing about it the first time and thinking, oh, okay, this is the lunatic fringe of the COVID era. Like the, the no planes at the Pentagon or the no planes at the Twin Towers, they were holograms. That was the lunatic fringe of the 9-11 era. And no virus, it's like no terrorists, no Al-Qaeda. It's the, the extreme end of the conspiracy. So we will push that off to one side, ignore that, and carry on with something more sensible. And I've transitioned from that point to thinking, oh, I've made a mistake here, that they're, they're not the lunatic fringe. They're actually re-looking at the whole paradigm of virology and asking the most logical, critical, and penetrating questions of anyone. So I think they should be firmly on the table. I'm not saying they're ultimately correct about everything. And I don't think even they say, or a lot of them wouldn't say, we can absolutely prove there is never a virus ever, because that, I mean, that's an extremely high bar. And not being in biomedical sciences myself, I can imagine that I will get to my my death and departure from this world without ever being able to like firmly come down on the side of the line and saying, I know this for certain about this. But as regards an interesting proposition, um, the introduction of a, a valuable paradigm and something that may indeed well be true, yes, I think it's firmly on the table. They, they've crossed that line for me. I take it very seriously. Okay. So like, did you get COVID? Yeah. Okay, so what were the symptoms as described like by everybody else? Textbook Omicron symptoms. I had the kind of muscular pain for a few hours and then it, that backed off and I was kind of okay, but I had a, a throaty thing for a while and that, that died off more slowly then. Like textbook Omicron symptoms. So I had COVID. I'm a healthy guy, eat healthy, you know, live healthy. But my daughter got it, you know, when she was in college and she came home. And then my wife got it. And then a few days later, I got it. And then my brother-in-law got it. We both had kind of classic symptoms exactly, you know, and the respiratory thing and, you know, that. And it went just just right along with the, the schedule. Lasted a long time. Worst flu I can remember having for a long, long time, maybe in my whole life. So, you know, now the people that you're in bed with now, and you interviewed some of them on your show. They say no, you didn't. You didn't have the flu. They they yes, because there's well, there's non-viral. So what it happened? Yes. What is now your understanding of what happened to you and what happened to me since it wasn't viral? Well, I don't know, and I think this is one of the maybe weaker points of the no virus thesis, if you like. The, uh, yeah. You say you had it. <laughs> your wife had it. So there seems to be transmission going on, and I don't discount that what I had could have been a virus. It could have been the COVID virus. Okay. But I'm open to the possibility no, no, you, of you do. The way I, you, I previously you do. No, I don't. You discount. do discount it. 
you do discount it because you you can't see this is the like one of the things that I, I was hoping we could kind of talk about because these are the logical fallacies and that's why i say it relates back to the whole skeptico thing from the beginning when you know years ago and we've known each other for a long time and i like the one thing i want to say at the beginning of this anyone can go back i have a ton of respect for you and for your work and for your mastery of these topics. That's why I've had you on Skeptico. And that's why I've always spoken so highly of you because I just do. So that's what makes this particularly interesting to me. Because if you can jump the shark, if you can be influenced by the psyopy nonsense, then it's not, it, it just puts it in a different, different category for me. And it just causes, to, causes me to think about it. Uh, differently. But the point I was going to make, and I kind of rambled on there, so maybe I slipped in some things you want to kind of address. But it's like this idea that I can be neutral, I can be agnostic, is, is, doesn't hold. It doesn't hold scientifically. For you to maintain that maybe you did have the virus, or maybe you didn't have the virus, is to deny all this tons of science that that tells you exactly what happened to you and millions of other people and explains it in a way that is scientific. You're challenging that. You're just being kind of like, well, I don't know, kind of a I'm just being open, you know, but no, you're challenging all that. Oh yeah. No, I, I'm not just like fence sitting in the sense of like, oh, could be this, could be that. I don't know. I really don't have any opinion. Maybe the earth is round. Maybe the earth is flat. Who knows? I am. My transition has been from if you'd asked me that question a year ago and I'd have got COVID the year before, let's just let's just say, I would have firmly said, oh yeah, I had I had a virus, of course. And and I would have described my childhood experiences of measles as being virus. And I just wouldn't have entered my head to question that. And that's what shifted for me. It's not completely good. I don't completely deny that possibility. But this whole other paradigm has arisen. Well, maybe there's a completely different way of looking what's, at what's going on there. And I think there's a solid underpinning to that as well. I think there's a, a lot of reasons you can put forward that point to serious substantial holes in the viral hypothesis. There are serious substantial holes in virology. But back to what you're saying, you are obligated to explain what happened to you, what happened to me, what happened to all these folks, common symptoms, right down the list. You, you need an alternative theory for how that could possibly be, because it's your direct experience and my direct experience. Yeah, but I don't, I mean, look, you might get someone on here who, from the, the no virus camp, who can put forward a more solid argument. My case is, I don't think the, para, the, the hypothesis on what's going on with things like COVID is massively, overwhelmingly strong. It wouldn't have convinced me. Okay, so you could say, well, maybe it's a detoxification. Okay, I got it in January. I do tend to drink more in December. So maybe my body is detoxifying. I don't know. It doesn't sound any more compelling to me than it was a virus as, as a, a theory. Okay, but, or, or just to point to another weak spot, uh, chickenpox parties. Okay, so parents have this uh, anecdotal experience that if you take your kids around to a house of a kid who has chickenpox, they will also catch chickenpox. Now, you need to explain that. And I asked my, my recent guest, Daniel uh, Thompson-Mills, who who had really researched uh, Tom Cowan's work. And Tom Cowan's notion on this is, well, maybe it's resonance, right? That if a child is going through a detoxification process, all the children come into resonance the way women come into resonance with their menstrual cycles. And maybe that's true. To me, that sounds as speculative, if not more, than it's a virus that's doing it. So I just don't think there's a good accounting for that in the, in the no virus paradigm as to how these things, how people seem to pick these things up in groups or sometimes there is, 
like with scurvy, people get on a ship and they all catch the dreaded scurvy and it goes round and the next people go and uh, come on the ship and they pass over and they get the scurvy virus and it seems like it's a virus. So sometimes you can account for how people seem to have viruses and when, when they don't, when, when there's this group contagion effect. But in other, in other cases, I don't think it's always strong. I don't think the no virus paradigm is a complete explanation of why disease and dysfunction arise in the human body. Um, but equally, I think the viral paradigm has substantially bigger holes in places different places. And that's what I mean about jumping the shark, right? So seven years ago, I think it's seven years ago at this mm. point, I did this show on Skeptico, you remember this, the title is UN says African American women 20 times more likely for HIV AIDS. Are they racist or just stupid? And it was an interview with this guy, Dr. Henry Bauer from Virginia Tech. And he was on to exactly what you're talking about, is that our understanding of viruses is very, very incomplete. And it's led us into some rather uh, wacky, politically driven, psyopy driven conclusions, one of which was this connection between HIV and AIDS. So what this guy did is phenomenal. And actually, he's just in this book, he was reporting on the work of other people who had pointed this out. But they were using information collected by the United States military, because when you join the military, they test, do you have HIV, do you have AIDS? And they found this anomaly that completely crushes the idea of this direct connection between HIV and AIDS. And that is that African-American women were 20 times more likely. So he was pointing to what you're pointing to is that we have a very incomplete understanding of how viruses, how germs, if you will, work and this work that our body does to keep all this stuff stable and healthy and all that stuff. But the jump the shark moment is the Michael Wallach moment. It's the no, there's no viruses or Tom Cowan, who I had on the show was just a complete moron. And like he says stuff like they've never isolated the virus. And I said, well, here's seven scientists who say they've isolated the, the virus. Here's a guy in Saskatchewan, Canada a doctor who used to work with camels in Saudi Arabia for viruses that cross from animals to people. And he goes, well, I, I don't believe it. And uh, he needs to tell the CDC and all just all this nonsense. It's the classic kind of flat earthy science where the standard then becomes, you have to convince me if you don't convince me to my satisfaction, then it isn't true. When just common sense would tell you, Richard, you had COVID. I had COVID. My wife had COVID. My daughter had COVID. My brother-in-law. My father-in-law died of COVID. Now, I don't usually throw that out there because I don't know if he really died of COVID, but he was in a, a nursing home in Alabama and he got sick and they tested him and it came up COVID and he died. I don't make a too big of a deal out of that uh, as a kind of a lead with, oh my God, somebody close to me died because they said he was going to die a year or two ago. And it, it, it took a good strong flu to kind of put him over. I'm not trying to be insensitive, but you know, that's the facts of it. You, you understand that to anyone who's listening to this just kind of rationally, they'd say, gee, Richard, 
you got to offer some way for how that could explain it's not detoxification that doesn't that doesn't fit with you know your body was detoxing and my body was detoxing and all these people you know that we could trace the number and the the spread of it and the whole thing and everyone's detoxing or some other kind of environmental stuff it you understand that that just completely doesn't make any sense i don't think it's Pivotal. Okay. And I can understand why you might disagree with that. But what I think the no virus idea is, is a competing paradigm. And I don't think paradigms necessarily explain all the facts. I think we're, if you look at it in a Cooney and Thomas Kuhn sense, we've, I've moved in my mind from the place of virology being the dominant paradigm to now the arising of a comp- competing paradigm, both of which have explanations for some facts. So if I can monologue for a minute, maybe on how I got here. With, with the HIV thing, so I obviously, going years back to when you did it on Skeptical and before, was aware that there was this idea that HIV didn't cause AIDS or wasn't directly connected or there was something a bit funny there. And that seemed, as the years went by, to have more and more validity because you don't see the mass die-offs that were predicted in the 80s. But I didn't pay too much attention to this stuff until the COVID era and we were all forced to look at viruses. And I went back and forth reading the work of Peter Duesberg, the uh, microbiologist who is probably the most prominent figure, along with Carrie Mullis, the uh, the inventor of the PCR test, on denying that connection between HIV and AIDS. So it seems to me to be the case. It seems to me that people in the 80s were destroying their immune systems by a heavy drug lifestyle. And then the drug AZT came along, and it seems undeniable at the doses it was being handed out at, this is Anthony Fauci's drug, it was killing people who had positive HIV tests, and those deaths are being logged as AIDS. So that would be something of a problem for virologists. But okay, maybe it's a one-off. Maybe that was one mistake and they were right about all the others. But then when I looked at polio, you have this inert virus that lives in human beings for thousands of years doing nothing. And then at exactly the moment people start spraying lead arsenate everywhere, polio mutates and becomes a virus that paralyzes people. And that continues in the first world, but not the third world when they're not spraying these things until lead arsenate and DDT are banned, at which point polio falls off a cliff. And then a vaccine comes in, which takes the credit for that. But at the same time, DDT is being sprayed in the third world now, and polio shoots through the roof. And you see it being renamed and relabeled. So, and, and then the, the third point for me would be the, um, the vaccination program. And I don't think you can divorce this from um, questions of whether virus or, or questions of the credibility of virology as a science. That If you were to ask any virologist, you know, how did the vaccination program contribute to the decline of these diseases? I'm going to say the vast, vast majority of them will think it's massive, will think they were the primary factors in the decline. Whereas what we actually see is the death rate from whooping cough and measles and, and so on was down 98, 99% before the introduction of vaccinations. So increasingly then, virology looks like a shaky science in all these points. And at some point you think, well, if something has got that many holes in it, maybe it's not just the odd mistake here and there. Maybe there's something fundamentally wrong with the paradigm that at least in the case of, of AIDS and poliomyelitis, we're not looking at a virus. There's something else. And if virologists can be wrong about that, why not measles? Why not smallpox? And, and why not COVID? And that brings me to then the idea that a lot of the COVID deaths, which I was convinced was, was um, viral-induced, were iatrogenic, were medically induced during the early part of 2020 and onwards from there. And that was the, the big shock for me when I saw that I can't put a number to it, right? It's very hard to get a number to it. Was it 100%? Was it less than that? But it seems like through things like the inappropriate use of ventilators, uh, end-of-life pathways, which Britain is famous for running to excess and drugs like midazolam, it seems like 
a lot of people were killed by their doctors during the early quarter of the um, se the second quarter of 2020 and when those death spikes are occurring. So when you add all this up, virology has so many holes in that maybe it's a sinking ship. Maybe there's something wrong with the very fundamentals and that what we're looking at, what, what scientists are looking at when they're staring down the electron microscopes and identifying particles and, and the, the virus people and the no virus people both agree on what is being seen. They're pointing to the same things, but they have a fundamentally different interpretation of what those things are, that they're either an infectious viral agent or they're the effects of toxification. What you're seeing is dying tissue there. And I just simply don't know which one of those ideas is correct at the moment, but I know the no-virus people can point to a lot of areas where they have scored and scored big time against the virologists. Yeah, but this is again the, the jump the shark thing. Like I just told you, you know, the, the guy I had on who is, you got to say he's a mainstream guy. He's Virginia Tech. Henry Bauer, the other one that I was going to, you know, bring to your attention because we've talked about it as well is, you know, Dr. Mary's Monkey, just a fantastic book, Edward Haslam. And you said when I brought this up to you that you've you've read this book. Well, mm -hmm. I don't know how you could read this book and not see the subtlety involved in what we're talking about here. And then is that just to recap the story on Dr. Mary's Monkey is they're trying to develop a polio vaccine because despite everything that you're saying, and I'm not saying that some of that isn't true, polio was the most feared disease in the 1940s, 1950s, right? It was mothers would keep their kids in from school, not send them out so they don't get polio and they don't wind up with these braces, these metal braces all over their legs. And it was the most feared disease. And when Saul comes along and says, I have the vaccine for polio, it was like a life-changing event. If you read the stories about the history, there were actually the reporters were weeping in the at the press conference because this was such a breakthrough from science that we could do this, all this stuff, right? So notwithstanding a lot of the stuff you're saying, the history I always talk about, I've talked with you about this on the show. It's like documented history is this guy, Oshner in Louisiana, and he's going to manufacture this vaccine and he's going to make a bunch of money. Eventually, this woman in charge of testing the vaccines, which is going to make Oshner just tons and tons and tons of money, she stands up and says, uh, you know, hate to mention this, but in my lab, some of the monkeys we've been testing the vaccine on are dying or getting really sick. And he goes, no, couldn't be, couldn't be, couldn't be happening. This is like COVID vaccine repeated, which has turned out to be incredibly, incredibly dangerous. If you see now the health effects that are happening, which again, completely contradict your model, cannot sustain this no virus thing. And at the same time, explain how the vaccine, which is based on the virus, could be causing all these health effects. But back to the story with Ashner. Ashner is looking at losing millions and millions of dollars if his vaccine because there's competing vaccine companies that are developing this if his vaccine is shown to be dangerous so he puts this big public demonstration and again this is history you can see pictures of this guy and pictures of his kids and stuff like that he does this public demonstration where he says i will inject the vaccine into two of my grandkids right here on stage he does one of them dies within 24 hours the other is permanently 
injured in a severe way by polio. So this little story, which is like a true account, people were there, people report on it, demonstrates how stupid the no virus thing is. But at the end of the day, to suggest that there is no virus or to get into camp with these people, what really bothers me, and the whole reason for this thing, is it just opens the door for what they really want to do, which is be in complete control of the scientific narrative around, in this case, COVID. Because if they can do the divide and rule thing, if they can get people in this, there is no virus camp, they've taken them off the table. They are off the table from public debate, from rational discussion, because no one takes that shit seriously. Well, just to the, the polio vaccine point, I was watching that exact thing in episode two of Mike Wallace's documentary a couple of nights ago, did a public showing of it. And if I was to talk to someone from the no virus camp who's really studied this and expert in it, that would be exactly my question, Alex. So, okay, if it's not a virus, why did people receiving the polio vaccine have the same symptoms as poliomyelitis? Like you'd think that just if it was just some random tissue they're injecting, you'd think they'd have something different happen to them. Like people getting the COVID vaccine, it's a problem with the, the myocarditis is meant to be the thing. So I don't know that. Right? that. That's a good question. It was a question that I thought of. But it doesn't change the fact that poliomyelitis correlates so tightly with environmental poisons. And in terms of where it arises both in time and in geography. So that seems like a much more likely paradigm to explain this condition of paralysis that was happening in children than an inert virus that's lived in human beings for thousands of years, randomly mutating into a deadly virus or a paralyzing virus at exactly the moment we start spraying all the food with chemicals we know paralyze people and then going away at exactly the moment we stop paralyzing uh, spraying the, the food of chemicals we know paralyze people. That just seems like too much of a coincidence. So, Mike, my, my, so if I can put a question to you, you answer it now or in a minute or whether, if there are these problems of virology, both in terms of the vaccination program being greatly exaggerated, like massively exaggerated in its efficacy, and that being something that virologists would support the vaccinations. And if it is true that HIV does not cause AIDS, if it is true that poliomyelitis is not caused by a virus, and if it's true that a good proportion, perhaps all of the uh, COVID deaths were iatrogenic, doctor-induced. How many sins would you allow the virologists to commit? How many times would you allow them to be wrong before you would say, well, okay, maybe they're wrong about something else. Like maybe it's measles, maybe it's rabies, but it's not like they're just wrong about the things you can prove right now. If they're wrong about all this, they're going to have one of the others wrong, surely. And if they can have one of the others wrong, then it could be two or three. And at what point do you have to say, you know, I think there is something potentially wrong with the underpinning virology paradigm? What, what would be your point of falsification for virology, where you'd at least question it? This is my job, is to take each one of those cases and break them down and find out where the truth is and follow the data. So are there serious problems with stretching how far and how effective vaccines are? Absolutely. What about the anti-vaxxer, you know, five years ago, the big issue was uh, the danger of vaccines, which I think has, it, it, like, <laughs> I stumble over this. That is like a super important topic to me, the danger of vaccines. But I want you to realize what this no virus PSYOP does to that. 
it completely sidelines it. You can't have both. A few years ago, the, the hot topic was, is MMR associated with autism? Is there a connection? And I think, like, statistically, I think that's been established. So before I go on and on, do, do you get what I'm saying? How, from a psyopy standpoint, what, a, what an effective move. You got these, these guys slamming this no virus thing, and it completely sidelines the dangers and the risks of vaccines. Well, that isn't where they go with it, certainly. I mean, they would be as critical of vaccinations as anyone. Now, I'm not quite sure. But for different reasons, the- for different reasons. They're, they're, look, the underlying science that I'm, that I'm putting forward, that again, you have to take a stand on this one way or another, is that the danger of like the MMR vaccine is in the vaccine. So hmm. what, would the, what would the germ people, the, the, the no vi- how would the no virus know, honestly, That's exactly the question I have. I don't know. It, that, it occurred to me just the other day, well, what, what's called, why do people taking the polio vaccine get polio-like symptoms? It's a, it's a good question. But at the same time, and I'm repeating myself here, I can't ignore the tight correlation between poliomyelitis and environmental poisons. It just seems just overwhelming to me when, when those poisons are known to cause paralysis. Like, even with the flat earth, Alex, I, I made myself come up with a falsification point. Not because I think the earth might actually be flat, but my concern was, if I'm just dismissive, right? And I, I get people commenting on my channel and occasionally writing to me saying, hey, you should really cover the flat earth. You need to take it. And I look at like their writing and what they link to me. And so far, it's all been ridiculous. It's been people going down to the beach and going, oh, it looks flat to me. So I've never gone further with it. And I, I, I refuse to cover flat earth as a science, right? Because I, I just don't accept that. But I made myself think of falsification points. Like, okay, what would be, what would convince me? What would make me a, a, a reject the round earth paradigm or at least put the flat earth paradigm on the table? Yeah, if I went outside and I looked at the sun again and I saw it actually disappearing into the distance rather than setting, okay, well, that, that would be, that, be a thing. And if I looked at a ship and I saw that it didn't actually like disappear the bottom first, or if um, if someone could demonstrate to me that there was actually a 500-year satanic conspiracy in the Catholic Church going at some point to suppress the truth of this, and, and there were some hidden CIA documents about putting bases all around the Arctic, okay, I want to have these points. Again, not because I think any of this is true, but because I think, like, if I, do, if I just make assumptions there, I'll start making assumptions elsewhere, and I'll dismiss other things, and one day, I'll get it wrong. So I made myself have a falsification point for, for round earth theory. And in the same way, I just think you have to have some kind of falsification point for virology. You have to say, well, how many things is it allowed to get wrong before you say, maybe what they think they're seeing down those electron microscopes isn't what they're actually seeing. Yeah, no. Tell us about your interview with uh, Dr. Merrill Nass. I've pulled yeah. it up on the screen. We've talked cool. about it. I thought it was phenomenal. It was super important. It was deeply scientific, I think, for people to really follow it and understand the subtleties of what she's saying. So tell us who she is and then tell us about the interview. Because again, this is something else that completely contradicts your no virus thing. Okay, Dr. Maranas has a background working with the uh, anthrax virus in, in security theater. And relevant to the COVID story, she was one of the first people to realize and blow the whistle, so to speak, on the doses of hydroxychloroquine that were being used in trials around the world and saying, hey, these doses are far higher, far higher than what should be used. Break that down a little bit, that that whole thing, because we're going to forget there's so many aspects to the COVID pandemic conspiracy that, you know, they, they get lost at some point. And also remind us that 
Uh, this Dr. Meryl Nash, she's like super highly credentialed, respected, not only as a physician in New York, but in all these multitude of research papers, panels, fellowships, super. Yep, absolutely. Yep. And she comes out, she comes out against the COVID thing and man, they, they go after her. Even yes, get her license up, pulled. Like, I, I can't remember while. the exact details of her um, biography or how her battles are going with the medical authorities in in the state she lives in, and if it's gone to court or what's going on. But that's all been a thing. She was, um, I think, struck off. I think that's what happened due to her promotion of hydroxychloroquine as a treatment for COVID nineteen. She was a big supporter of that, but she hydroxychloroquine is obviously the drug that Trump politicized it became well made famous it became this politicized role where republicans loved it and democratic democrats hated it <laughs> it was based on whether you like donald trump or not it was kind of crazy but not a lot of people are aware that there were really substantial trials went on with hydroxychloroquine um, prior to donald trump ever mentioning it in april may june of 2020 and meryl nass is one of the doctors who highlighted the doses being used in these trials was uh, toxic now the other one the the, the interview you brought up on screen there wasn't my interview with Maranas. That was a, a post-interview clip I made where I contrasted her thoughts with the thoughts of Dr. Klaus Koline, who was a European doctor who noticed the same thing. And it's been fed back to him that he may have prevented hydroxychloroquine trials in Germany by going on the German media and talking about the toxic doses. So I did a fair bit to establish that, yes, that is indeed true. The, the doses were, I think, depending how you look at it, it's either you can, if you look at it a certain way, you can say that it's like um, 900% more hydroxychloroquine was used than is typically used in a trial. And um, the, the trials were stopped and it ended in Brazil. It ended in a, a legal case. Okay, But the question I wanted to pose to Dr. Nass, particularly on this, the, the controversy, is that the book Virus Mania heavily implied that those trials contributed to the excess mortality seen in European countries. So in Great Britain, for example, you're seeing 10,000 excess deaths a week. And there's the heavy implication of virus mainly that the trials were part of that. And um, Dr. Meryl Nass said, and I think she's completely correct about this, that's wrong, okay? Because the, the trials are being run with a few hundred people. So as compared to the total mortality rate, it's a blip. So I did that particularly to get a critique of the no virus position. Now, I don't think it's dead in the water, okay? Because it could be, and the, the book virus mania also indicates this, that hydroxychloroquine was being used at a dose comparable to the trials in hospitals across European, European countries. And that's one of the reasons, maybe several reasons, why you get like Spain has the biggest death spike in Europe. Portugal right next door has nothing. It's a complete flat line. Um, Germany has minimal, minimal excess deaths, whereas France is very high, Belgium is very high. And apparently, uh, I haven't checked this directly, but it's, it's Switzerland apparently breaks down according to the cantons. So the virus mania paradigm is that the, the deaths you're seeing are uh, iatrogenic, um, um, doctor-induced, medically. That, that's Klaus Kohlein's paradigm. So really, I was getting a critique of that, because if that's true, then we need to get precise on what's causing that. And we can't say it's trials if it's not. And if it's not true, then we need to say, okay, well, there was this dangerous virus going around and Portugal avoided it by locking down on time. But there's obviously problems with that, because Sweden didn't lock down and they got a mild hump in, in the care homes. So I, I was trying to shed light by trying to, I think that's like really to me, establishing what caused those death spikes is the most important question in the world. Because if there's not a big, scary death spike, there's no justification for masking, lockdowns, compulsory vaccinations, any of it. So I want to get precise on that, even if the like the answers that come back uh, contradict the position that I'm investigating, that it, they were iatrogenic. And, and Meryl Nass's answer did. She, she took deaths out of that category. Okay. So 
you're kind of burying the lead. None of her research, none of this, it wasn't her research. Her research was kind of a, an investigation into a multitude of studies that were done by these antiviral medications and their, whether or not they were efficacious in people who were, I think they were, most of them were in ICU uh, from, from COVID. I mean, none of the shit you're saying makes any sense if there's no virus. None of Merrill Nass's work, and again, it's not our work, none of these studies would make any sense if there's no virus. Do you, do you understand the contradiction in what you're saying? Forget for a second the other thing you're dealing with and the spike in deaths and all that. The fundamental underlying research wouldn't make any sense giving someone hydrochloroquine, giving someone ivermectin, and then measuring whether or not the, the mortality rate after they had been admitted for COVID, it, it presupposes the existence of a virus. So you, you, it stands totally in contrast with this wacky, no virus, no rabies shit. It presupposes that hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin treat what is demonstrably going wrong with the person. It doesn't presuppose that that is a viral. Ivermectin is antiparasitic. So it's not, and it's hard to go from the lab results of what it's doing to why that would then work in a person. So I know this is something that, that um, Dr. Uh, Didi Rancor, uh, the Canadian, um, emphasized that he thought that the reason you get a spike in COVID deaths in the southern United States, particularly, is because they're bacterial infections. And what you see, for, for he presented statistics in his paper showing that the um, prescriptions of antibiotics dropped immensely uh, during 2020-2021, and that this accounts for why you have the rise in COVID deaths, because the bacterial infections are being misdiagnosed as a virus and not being treated. So he suggests that ivermectin would also work on that. Well, two, two points. The first is, I think you're kind of sliding off the the issue of, you know, if you take it really kind of block, dumb, simple, you have all these people who are being admitted to the hospital and tested for the existence of the COVID antibodies in their blood, which again, you'd have to just kind of throw that out the window, but there are these people I, again, I, I just, it, it's so illogical that it doesn't make any sense, but there's this group of people and then you're going to not treat some of them and then you're going to treat other ones and you're going to measure the result. I mean, that's all we can ever do with these medical experiments. It does become a statistical kind of thing. So in the same way that when you asked Merrill Nass about this crazy uh, Andrew Kaufman, you know, kind of there is no virus. She was like, of course, that's ridiculous. And she came out and she said, this guy's ridiculous. He's a fraud. He isn't even a, a scientist. He's a psychiatrist. And But then she, she won't even talk on that anymore because she got so much pushback and just, again, calling out how stupid the no virus hmm. thing is. Yeah, she but refuses it, to address it. So she's written papers, she, she's written articles on it, but then refuses to address it further. Because she, be. she already addressed it in the papers and she said the guy's a total quack. So what is the, that? You know, switching to the stuff I'm interested in, that supports the idea that this no virus thing is the psyop, is one of the psyops, because there's a million of them. But yeah, when she gets slapped down for saying the obvious that 
this guy is a quack. Uh, you know well, that, that. So I don't know. How, I don't know if she was slapped. She was doing the slapping at some part. She critiqued a paper that Torsten, Torsten Engelbrecht wrote, and he's a journalist who was part of the Virus Mania book, along with Klaus Kohlein, and there was a, another doctor um, with a European name I can't recall. And so, yeah, I, I sent the interview to Torsten Engelbrecht, journalist, and he wasn't impressed either. He he felt no Maronas hadn't answered any of his positions. But it's nigh on impossible to get any of these people in the same room together. Like people don't talk across paradigms, like ever. It's the last this is this is there's, the closest you'll get. And there's two people there's, that want five <laughs> There's no <laughs> there's no there's no paradigm involved in I mean, I still don't see that you're I mean, maybe we're disagreeing, but like none of what Merrill Nass is saying would even fundamentally make sense to even investigate or talk about if there wasn't a COVID virus. And you kind of slipped into the kind of uh, crazy land where like maybe all these people in the hospital are, are not, I don't know if you're saying that they're not sick or that they're sick, but they don't have COVID or that they all pass the COVID test because they're all in the hospital and they were tested for COVID and they tested positive for COVID and that's your sample size. But then I don't know what you're saying after that is that then we can't measure or not whether or not in this case, in this case, hydrochloroquine can be effective. I, I don't understand what you're saying. It's completely illogical. Well, I'm saying if you witness a massive decrease in the number of antibiotic prescriptions, then you've got to wonder, like, what happened to all the people getting bacterial infections? But that's a separate issue. Period. That's a separate oh. issue, right, Richard? And we'll get to that. That's the second point that I was going to bring up mm -hmm. about germ theory. But back to Meryl Nass, when she's saying, because like, we're going to get way deep here, but that's okay, because you did in your show. And that's why I like the show so much. The subtlety that Meryl Nass brought to that is she said, look, there's all these people getting admitted to the hospital. And they're when they come in, they're tested for whether or not they have COVID. They get a positive COVID test, and then they wanted to see if hydrochloroquine could be effective. So they gave them doses of hydrochloroquine, and then they measured whether or not they got better. So none of that works unless COVID is what we think COVID is. You don't get different results. You don't get this pattern. You did that, that, that. But what she said, the, the whole meat and potatoes of what she was trying to say, that again, just gets kind of totally pushed aside by the crazy no virus folks, is that she goes, look what these motherfuckers did, which was so subtle, is that we've known for a long time that this hydrochloroquine is a tricky drug and that you don't, if you overdose just a little bit, you start getting some pretty bad side effects. So what they did in these studies is they just pushed the dosage up just a little bit my reading of it may be a little bit different than yours. It wasn't like 900%. It was just enough to get what, what they wanted, which is a null result. The null result was, hey, if you give them hydrochloroquine or if you don't give them hydrochloroquine, it doesn't matter because they're still dying at this rate. So that was the goal of it, was to show that hydrochloroquine yielded a null result in these studies. Mm -hmm. What she then showed and what you reported on is that if you do it correct with the proper dosage of hydrochloroquine, like they did in the Brazil study that you referenced, it turns out to be very efficacious. Again, which makes no sense if you're a no virus person, no sense at all, but makes sense if you 
understand the antiviral qualities of hydrochloroquine. Now, do you see what I'm saying about how there's a, a contradiction there, how you can't you can't kind of have both ways? You can't have, there is no virus, and then at the same time be doing these rather sophisticated uh, medical experiments that she documents on treating the virus. Yeah, just to say, I might want to back off that 900 figure. I can't quite remember. I did say it was the most extreme figure you could calculate because it depends how you look at it. And the, the dosing of hydroxychloroquine studies just went on for a lot, lot longer over a continuous period of days. So most extreme figure I get is like, if you take the end day of, of like the 14 days, or whatever, and compare it to the two or three days people are usually on for parasitic infections or whatever it is, then you get this massive increase. But within 24 hours, it was something like a 50% increase in 24 and a 100% increase in 28. And what people say is it's a very low uh, therapeutic to toxic threshold with hydroxychloroquine. So you'd have to give that much more before it's it's damaging. Um, yeah, that that was certainly Maranassa's contention. That was just like a deliberate hit. And it is weird because I, I went as far as looking at the the scientific papers uh, where they established uh, what would be safe and what wouldn't. And pictures of the doctors' faces appear on this who were doing this. And it's a very strange experience to look at them and think, were you, were you deliberately setting the dose too high? Or were you just like idiotic in what you were doing? Or it's a very, very, very strange question. But certainly it has that effect, right, of um, of rubbishing the effects of the drugs and making it uh, appear dangerous. Maybe if it was rolled out en masse, and I just don't know that it, that it was, uh, at the same time the studies were going on, then it would also have had the effect of uh, lifting the death rate. But well, to speak to, does it, um, do you, does it prove if, if hydrochloroquine hydrochloroquine and ivermectin are effective, uh, does that prove the uh, it's a viral origin of COVID. Well, no, it just obviously people aren't going to the hospital because they're feeling great. There's obviously something wrong with them, and those drugs are treating that thing if it's demonstrated to be effective. I don't think it necessarily proves that that thing is viral, especially when ivermectin is is um, antiparasitic to begin with. Right, but they're being tested for whether or not they have the COVID antibodies. So then people can spin off on all of that, but when you put it all together, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense. Like this is like basic experimental science like what is your group how do you control the group well the control in this group was do they test positive for covid do they not just show the symptoms but do they test positive based on this test we have and that is how we separate that's like the entry ticket into controlling this experiment so no it it doesn't it, it you can't go into this kind of la la land like you know maybe they had uh viral maybe they didn't no we tested them for that with the the well, test well, that is a fairly substantial part of the no virus case and i have to say it goes over my head but the idea that the uh, the pcr tests are not effective well no what they're really saying if you really look at it and again some of the best work from this comes from the people who are against the pandemic. And yet that's why I think you got to look at the PSYOP here. When when the people like like Del Bigtree, uh, you know who Del Bigtree is, right? He mm -hmm. came out early and was very much saying this is pandemic, this is scamdemic, this is not great. And he did the best thing on the PCR test. He said what what they're doing is they're upcycling the mm -hmm. 
right? So they're increasing multiple times and they're generating a lot of false positives, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not that the test is completely ineffective. It's just, if you have a test with enough false positives, it would never be anything that someone uses. But now if you buy like off the shelf, like my wife did when she was sick, if you buy the off the shelf PCR test down at your local drugstore, what they say is, look, this is a pretty shitty test. It's pretty ineffective. But if you take a take it two times, 48 hours apart, and they both come up positive, you can be pretty sure that you have it. And then you can go into your doctor and they can actually do the blood test. And when you get all those confirmed, the, ch the, the chances are that you have COVID, you know, you, you do, there's no way. So there's no way around that. Again, the misinformation about there is no, vi none of that stuff would be possible if there were no viruses. And you couldn't have like the, the basic idea of, of, of like, that's what I'm saying fundamentally behind the, the Merrill Nass thing. And I think what I sense when you talk to her or when anyone talks to her is when someone goes down this moonshot, crazy, there is no viruses stuff, they just kind of check out because it's like they're not going to talk to somebody who is in this flat earth camp. But what she's saying, I think, is that look, that doesn't make any sense in that you couldn't test all these people and have all them have the symptoms and positive test if there wasn't a virus. And that's just the starting point to what we really wanted to test as to whether or not hydrochloroquine was effective. So it's, do you get I, I, the, the kind of built-in frustration that I have a little bit, but not that much because I'm totally in the game of conspiracy a lot more than other people are. But do you get that sense when you talk to people who really kind of know the science and they just kind of check out with all this wacky no virus stuff? Well, certainly Maranas did. And I have to just acknowledge, I'm up against my limit now in terms of what I can speak. I can't speak to the testing other than parroting what I hear people saying and saying, well, this is what they, you know, the, the testing is, is ineffective and there's no isolation of either COVID. No, no meaningful isolation. But how would that make I can, sense? I can, I can, so, so well, just common sense. Okay. How would that, how would that make sense then, Richard? How would it make sense that you test these people and mm -hmm. they're sick, they have the symptoms and they're positive on the test and you have other healthy people who take the test and they're negative and you do that over and over again. How would that make any sense? Well, it could be testing for something that's to do with, obviously, with them being sick, okay, like a, a breakdown. like So to go back to the electron microscope, when the virus and no virus camp look down it, they're seeing the same thing. But when the virus camp look down, they're saying, okay, that, that's a virus down there. We're seeing that little squiggly thing with the, the crown-like proteins on or whatever. And the no virus people are saying, no, that's, that's tissue breaking down due to toxification, due to some kind of illness. So if the test is testing for the presence of that thing, then it's saying that thing is there, but it's either a virus or the breakdown of tissue. And again, I'm not saying that's a good explanation. So for the audience, please don't, you know, take that to the bank. But that's um it's just one logical way that that could be the case. It seems to be inherent in the whole fact that there is a disagreement that the test could be showing different things. Okay, hold on here, folks. This is what you've been waiting for. We're about to have a breakthrough here, a logical breakthrough. So, Richard, you are a little biotech startup, and you're going to manufacture this test for COVID. And you're not part of the pandemic in particular. You're just a guy trying to make a buck. You know, you've already do all these other tests, and now you're going to do this test. Okay. 
can't, what do you, what do you have to show in order for your test to be accepted, to be used? Can, I mean, can you just do, can you just totally fake it? Can you just put out a totally, totally fake test that doesn't really do anything? It just randomly comes up positive, negative. Is that going to work? Is that going to pass muster with consumers? No, I suppose. I mean, look, I'm getting very speculative here, but I suppose you would have to have a test that lights up when the presence of whatever it is that we're calling COVID-19 is there to some degree of accuracy. But it doesn't necessarily mean that that thing that is being picked up by the test is a virus. Like That's the point of contention. How do you suppose you would do that? Because what they, the way they did it was they're testing for the virus antibodies. So how would you do it, given in this world that you're in where there are no viruses, there are, how would you make your test work so you can make money, so you can sell it to- But there are biological entities that are being identified as viruses. Right, but they, they again, they're gonna have to match up with symptoms. So people are sick, they're gonna go to the store yes. and they're gonna buy, and, and then you're also in your testing, in your testing before you put this out on the market, because you can't, we already agreed, you can't just do a total sham test or a total sham uh, uh, thing. So you're going to have to do some internal testing. You're going to have to mm -hmm. take people who are sick and, uh, and then you're going to have to take people who are healthy and you're going to have to give them your little instant test. So how are you going to run, how are you going to run that test to see whether or not your test is efficacious? Because the tissue is picking up, okay, and again, I have to say that I'm being very hypothetical here, um, the tissue, like the tissue being picked up gone, it, it could be that that's a tissue that appears in the presence of sickness, whether that sickness is a virus or a detoxification process. That's the thing that's up for debate. But if you aim the test at that, it's going to pick up on it and you can say, oh, that's a virus or, or it's how tissue breaks down under toxification. And that, that seems to be the central split in how that's interpreted. So it is plausible to have a test that would pick up on sickness and a certain type of sickness. Well, oh, you, you, you just realized kind of your problem there when you add a particular type of sickness, because now we're talking about a very particular set of symptoms around this thing called COVID-19. So you're, you're just getting into kind of territory that just doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. And again, so back to your little laboratory, uh, you would also have to have, because this is an instant test, you want to crank these things out so that people can just do them uh, really quickly with the saliva in their mouth kind of thing. And then it's going to be backed up with the blood test that they're going to do, where they're going to do a more comprehensive uh, test. So that's going to be your standard inside your little biotech company by which you compare whether your test is effective. Like, is my little saliva test working in the same way as the blood test does? And I'm hoping that at this point you see that in order for you to do any of this work effectively, you will have to have a working understanding of this virus, a working understanding of it. You are not at the level of just saying, well, let's see this tissue that it, it, you couldn't do it. You couldn't manufacture these things. You couldn't test to see whether they're effective. It just wouldn't work. Right. To be, to be honest, I, I'm out of my depth with the testing because nothing about the testing convinced me that virus, well, convinced me to put the no virus position on the table. So I think I've just got to acknowledge this because your audience is going to be getting, getting increasingly bad arguments from me from here on in because it's just 
you would need to bring someone who's really studied the, the testing on. My basis for putting the no-virus position on the table is what I've already said regarding that there are these really strong other corporates for polio and HIV and all of the COVID deaths and the inefficacy of the vaccination program, et cetera. And I'm, I'm sort of trying my best with the, the testing, but I've, I'm concerned I'm not representing a position that other people could represent very well. Yeah, this is what people always say when they kind of reach a, a point where they can't do it. Look, the, well, Alex, the, the virus, the testing, and the vaccine are all related. And when people break them out and say, well, I'm not, I don't know about the testing. The testing is the virus. There's no, you, you can't separate it out as its own category. The vaccine is the virus. When we talked about the MMR autism connection, it's about the virus. So Again, all that stuff is out the window for the no virus people, but we've pounded on that enough. The other thing I would say that always just drives me crazy about the germ people, it's all this focus on virus, but oh, bacteria, uh, that, that's something, that's some, that's a whole different category, you know, anthrax or cholera or any risk of that, because we can see it in a microscope, you know, that, 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 that isn't in our uh, purvey of, uh, of this kind of wacky germ theory versus terrain theory thing why doesn't bacteria fall into the same category of, as viruses i i don't know I, perhaps because of what you said it's a larger entities that are visible and do float around causing disease i, I imagine there might be some split in that. I, I don't know i think it's kind of funny because we've always talk about the koch postulates and you know this guy back at 1870 and isolation and stuff like that he isolated bacteria. That was the first thing that he did. And the whole right. idea of germ theory is that is that before that, no one would believe that there were these things that couldn't be seen that were causing disease. And that was the breakthrough that these guys did. And like you've reported on in your show, and everyone has, you know, Lister was famous for the antiseptic surgical techniques where he, he insisted, you know, that uh, doctors wash their hands after giving birth so that they didn't and you know all of a sudden infectious diseases went way down because these doctors they, they hey my hands are clean there's there's yeah. not there can't be anything there so uh, again this wacky no virus stuff go read what these people say they're told that, that has go, nothing go. to do with bacterial infections right the it totally does See, the guy you last had on your show right daniel thompson mills yeah he's all about terrain theory versus germ theory Mm -hmm. So uh, germ theory includes bacteria. It isn't limited to viruses. So when he's pushing back against germ theory, he's not distinguishing. He's not saying, oh, yeah, well, you know, bacteria are a totally separate category of these invisible small little things that can be linked to disease. It's just no one talks about it. This whole thing is a psyop, man. Yeah. So I'm not saying that about bacteria. Daniel said some things which I thought were speculative, some things which I thought were very sensible, and some things which I thought were wrong. And I did push back on certain things that he'd taken from Tom Cowan's work. Like apparently Tom Cowan has an idea that when pus forms around a splinter, that's the body pushing the splinter out. Oh, great. I, I hadn't heard that one before, but that's a classic. And when I pushed on that and said, well, what's the basis for that? And he was just told, quoting Tom Cowan. He, he didn't have one. So there's some certainly certain things that I'm very cynical of, okay? And I'm not personally going down the bacterial infections don't exist at all. I think it's just really demonstrable they do. So I'm, I'm just not, that's not what, an idea that I'm... What's the distinction you're making there between uh, bacterial infections and viral infections? I couldn't describe it in the terms of biology. 
bacteria or living things, aren't they? And viruses aren't, and they're much smaller. I couldn't describe the biology of it. Well, the vi viruses are clearly living things, right? I mean, I didn't say, I don't think so. I thought they're not technically alive. I could be wrong about that. I thought that was quick Google might. Uh, yeah. I mean, they're alive or they wouldn't be, they wouldn't be multiplying. Are viruses living? That's a question that, look at this. So most biologists say, no, viruses are not made out of cells. They can't keep themselves in a stable state. So I think that's one factor that makes people skeptical of them, that a non-living thing can do all these things attributed to them. It's not my complaint. My complaint is, well, with bacterial infections, you could identify the bacteria and it seems to be causal. There's not some other thing you can put in there to suggest, hey, this is causing all the diseases. Whereas with some viruses, that's present as I explained with, with polio, except. Right. So I, I guess as I keep going through uh, Google, viruses are considered both living and non-living. This is due to the fact that viruses possess the characteristics of both living and non-living. For instance, viruses can reproduce inside a host, just like any other living organism. But this ability to reproduce is lost when viruses outside of the host cell. I still think you're going to have a hard time but I understand your distinction. I don't want to dismiss it. I understand that there's a distinction between viruses and bacteria that could feed into what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Okay. How should we move towards uh, wrapping this up? Do you want to have some kind of closing? Well, maybe another aspect of this, which might be interesting to talk about, just because I think we, we're going to start going around in circles with the virology thing, and we've said what we've said is your perception that it's either a PSYOP or at any rate, it's something that's very, very bad to have in because it introduces all this craziness into what we need to have, which is focused resistance against COVID, okay? And the COVID agenda and whatever COVID 2.0 is, which is going to come down, it's already heading towards us. And this is, for me, I see a repetition of what happened with 9-11, where you, you ha everyone has a different kind of crazy line with 9-11. So you get people who think that it was all a, a geopolitical uh, games being played by the CIA and they were trying to manage the uh, ultimate hijackers, but they lost control of them. And then you get people who say, no, that's that's not far enough. Uh, they, were try they, they were managing the hijackers so they could do the operation. And the first group think the second group is crazy, but the second group think the people who say bombs in the buildings are crazy. The people who say think bombs in the buildings are crazy, uh, the people say that there were bombs in the buildings. They think the holographic plane people are crazy. And what you have is this massive amount of infighting because everyone thinks it's very important that no one to the left or the right of them should be included in the movement. And I just see that pattern repeating. And it's been a very depressing thing for me to see how no one will talk across ideological lines with the COVID virology questions. Everyone just goes into their silo and that's it. And this is, you know, from us two entirely non-experts on this who, who you know, read what we've read on it, uh, but do not spend our lives staring down electron microscopes. This is the closest thing that exists to a dialogue on this topic, almost, you know, which is it's quite depressing, really. So it's that perception. I, I suppose where I'm differing there, Alex, is I don't necessarily, and I can't see intellectual expansiveness as being a bad thing. Okay. So if people are just on a, on a pure science level, I think that science progresses through conflicts of opposites. Okay. This Protagorean sentiment that you make the weaker argument the stronger and thereby advance the motion of the whole. So I think that by interjecting uh, an, an alternative paradigm, and that could be creationism in the evolutionary story, then you you look at, or, or it could be the no virus camp, even if it's not ultimately true, even if it's not ultimately true, 
then by looking at things that way, they are going to see things that other people won't. Like, who is it that's going to see that the um, the bones we're saying are the missing links aren't really the missing links? Well, it'll be people that don't believe in, in evolution. And who is it that's going to see that polio maybe wasn't caused by a virus after all? It was, it was um, environmental factors. Well, quite likely, people who are very, very, very cynical about the existence of viruses at all. So to me, pluralism is a healthy thing for the advancement of knowledge and an uncertainty on issues that we don't know about, embodying that uncertainty is a healthy thing too. I'm not just talking about like outright fence sitting, but a movement off the fence in both directions into, into one side and then the other and coming back to the fence. All of this seems very healthy to me. And then I notice, I don't think you see it that way. I think you see it as something that's detracting from what should be more focused. So how do we square that circle? Well, this is something that you've uh, mentioned to me in the past, and particularly with 9-11. And the example you gave was somebody starts out with flat earth, you know, and they eventually over time go, wow, that was pretty crazy. Don't remind me. But it opens them up to looking at 9-11. So they were moving in these circles where those two issues within the circle of people they came in contact with were equally crazy, like you're saying. You believe in flat earth, you believe in 9-11, they're the same. And now the person goes through this process, like you're saying, and they go, yeah, flat earth is kind of goofy, but 9-11 turns out to be, you know, have a lot of substance to it. And I've had, we've had this conversation before where, you know, you kind of hold that up and that's undeniable. I mean, shoot, we've all been there. <laughs> we've all been there personally. The reason I like science even though I still think science is wrong about almost everything because it doesn't incorporate any consciousness, is that I do think it is important to have, especially in these times where information is being manipulated, is being controlled. There are all these psyops, there are all these agendas, undeniable, you know, when you go into these other fields, that we, we, we hold to some basic principles and standards, both in terms of science and in terms of logic and reason. And I don't think it's a good idea to jump off just for a little while so that I can come back on with a fresh perspective. I accept that maybe that works for some people, but I don't think in general that's a good path. And I think it's just wrought with all sorts of potential manipulation. To me, just follow the data wherever it leads. In the case of, of viruses, you know, to make that case and advance that case, you would have to contemplate a conspiracy going back hundreds of years involving thousands and thousands of scientists who've published peer-reviewed papers that you can look up and then analyze and other people have analyzed them. And you'd have to say all that was some kind of organized effort to bring us to this point in this discussion between Richard and Alex to confuse the issue because what's really going on is there's no viruses. To me, that is just only an inch or two above the flat earth stuff. Mm. So I completely disagree about it necessitating a conspiracy. And what I think is that in some ways, we still live in the Middle Ages. And this is maybe Maybe this is a fundamental point of contention. In some ways, we don't. When I look at my window and I see a giant flying robot moving through the sky, that's the end point of a process of where we have become, in some way, better at interrogating the natural world and coming up with science and building technology off that science. So we are, in some ways, fundamentally different 
in the way we think than we were in the past, as is evidenced by the world around us. But in another way, I don't think we are. And I think that other way is that we're still very, very bad at questioning our core assumptions. And this is um, Thomas Kuhn's point about the way people come into science is it's more like learning a trade. So when my electrician comes around and, and does the wiring in the house, like he may be very competent at that, but I don't necessarily expect to be able to have a conversation with him about the nature of electricity or whether Nikola Tesla was right about transmitting it wirelessly through the air. I mean, you know, I'm sure you get very philosophical electricians, but I'm not, that's not in the training, okay, to question the nature of things. And I think science is essentially the same with that, where people are initiated into a profession by having to compress a learning into a tight space of time and regurgitate it from exams inside an existing paradigm. And then they can go their entire career under pressure to always produce and always move on without ever questioning the foundation they're standing on. And I, I think that's why you can have sciences that are people pour their expertise into, spend their lifetime studying, and they can still be wrong about the fundamentals. And that, that occurs in lots of different ways. I, I've just produced a podcast on the history of the First World War, questioning whether historians have been locked into a, a perspective that excuses uh, the British complicity in starting the war. I'm looking at a, a podcast on, on the science of memory, and I'm, I'm realizing that a lot of underpinnings of certain branches of psychotherapy really went down a wrong path with very destructive results because people don't question the foundation. So in all areas of human knowledge, I think this can exist. And that's why you don't need a conspiracy to account for massive errors existing over time and, and space. Yeah, I think you have to be really careful when you draw these analogies. And the part that I think totally runs against what you're saying is the engineering uh, medical devices, medical cures, medical science, you know? So kind of like I'm saying, I think the, the strongest argument you can go back and kind of contemplate a little bit is like, if you were going to come up with a test for COVID that tested your saliva and, you know, indicated whether or not you had COVID and you wanted to cross correlate it with the effectiveness of the blood test, you know, and there are two different means of getting at the same thing. You can't engineer shit and make it work if you don't have a command of the science. It's kind of like you can't build a computer, you can't build a modem, you can't build an iPhone if you don't have a command of how an integrated circuit works. You can't just kind of wish it to be so or speculate on it. It's in the engineering where which a lot of times leaves behind what you're talking about in terms of the the philosophical underpinnings of some of this stuff the engineering of it is where it really kind of is all revealed and i'd say the same is true with the vaccines the vaccines are the engineering of the virus and that their existence completely is counter to the idea that there are no viruses it's like <laughs> You know, it's like the other thing about the COVID is it's not only a virus, it's a bioweapon. They built it in a fucking lab, in a lab where they were building other dangerous viruses and weaponizing other dangerous diseases. Again, I'm going to rant for a little bit longer because we didn't talk about this topic. Notice how that is effectively moved off to the side with this PSYOP. Hey, there is no viruses. So let's not worry about our bioweapon labs and the Chinese bioweapon labs, because 
there are no viruses. Gain of function, Fauci, all that, that's off the table. There are no viruses. They can't be working to improve the gain of function of the virus because there are no viruses. Yep. Do, you, do you understand the absurdity oh, I, of that? I, I entirely agree. Everyone who thinks there's a virus and it's a bioweapon thinks the no virus thing is a scam to detract from that. And everyone who's into the no virus thing thinks that the uh, gain of function in the Chinese laboratories is a scam to detract from the fact there's no virus. How could that, explain to me since you're in that camp, how do they explain away the, the gain of function research? I mean, explain to me how they explain that away. No idea. I'm. I hope that the audience listening to this has gained some value from what I have said, but I would be going into areas that I just don't have a clue about if I even went there. So. Rationally, logically, how does that make any sense to you? I don't know. I just can't. Look, because two years ago, the whole no virus thing at all didn't make sense to me. So I, I just don't know. I know they talk about it. I just don't know about it. Richard, think about it for a minute. Think just anything. You again. You said that there were just two people who who don't know that much. Again, this is back to my point of logic, basic logic, basic reason. How can you have published studies on gain of function of the weaponization of these viruses if viruses don't even exist? How could you have people studying that? How could you have all these bioweapons? I don't labs know. I have heard Mark Bailey make the exact opposite point and say, well, the reason this research never comes to anything and the reason you have chemical warfare, but no biological warfare rolled out is because it's completely ineffective because it's built on a, a false paradigm. So it is addressed, but I would, my, the poverty of my reply would be such that it is not worth giving. I just, I just, I'm out. I, I don't know. I can't, I can't do that one. Okay, so as a result of this, you're going to get to the bottom of it because you agree that is completely logically inconsistent. That whole body of research, which is gain of function, it, it, it's it, not only would it not be like the, even the part you said about that guy who said yeah, it never works. It's like no, I mean they publish all these papers and say that this is what they did and here's the results that they got and all the rest of that. You, you would have to create a. a, a a world where that is, how would you even explain that? That they're just kind of making that up or that they're, it's passing peer review or that they're not really doing the experiments. I mean, I don't even know logically how that would even, how you would put that argument together. I don't know, but it doesn't, if you consider like the, the body of work that must exist on HIV, okay, and if it doesn't cause AIDS, that body of work can just be taken and put straight into the bin. But there must be thousands of thousands of scientists who have worked on that problem and thousands of thousands of scientists who worked on the polio problem. And either the guy you had on your show is wrong or all that research goes in the bin. And I no. don't think it's because they're all in a conspiracy. No, right? it's because no. they're looking at something. No, wrong. see that that's, that's not how, how it is. And that's not the case with the HIV AIDS thing. And this is again, the PSYOP is like the, the HIV AIDS thing when Henry Bauer was on there and the people he talked, is it not that viruses don't exist? Not that AIDS isn't connected to a virus. It's just that it's not as simplistic as they're trying to make it. It's analogous to the climate change thing, you know? Climate change thing is complicated, man. There's a lot of things that go into climate, a lot of things go into all that stuff. So teasing it apart is like, you can always get a different angle. So people can really do work on HIV and AIDS, and they can very subtly delude themselves into thinking that they're seeing an effect or they're exaggerating the effect or they're calc statistically calculating because there really are viruses. 
And there really is such a thing as HIV. It's just they can make subtler little kind of scientific mistakes that we can understand and, and come to these weird, exaggerated conclusions like you're pointing to. But you can't do that if there's no viruses, right? You can't. It doesn't make it that doesn't fit back into the equation. Right. Well, I mean, to be fair, Peter Duesberg, who's I think the most prominent and renowned critic of the HIV equals AIDS hypothesis, I think he considers there is an HIV virus. It's just not causing AIDS. But he also talks about that being a kind of halfway house. And he thinks that's the direction it will go is when people want to move away from this idea that HIV causes AIDS. They'll say, well, there are co-factors that you have to have to, for HIV to develop into AIDS. But he doesn't accept that. He said, no, but the HIV is irrelevant to AIDS. So again, if he's correct, then I don't think the HIV research is, is really worth all that much then. I, I would say it probably doesn't need to go in the bin. Well, well, if it, but what, what did you just say there, Richard? I mean, look, the people that we really respect who really know what's going on, they don't even give uh, any credence at all to the there is no virus nonsense. Okay, but so these he are also doesn't... people that didn't notice the vaccination program was effect ineffective and didn't notice that AZT was clearly causing AIDS in people and not HIV through the 80s and 90s. So if they can be wrong about that, also the people that didn't notice the DDT polio connection. So I'm saying if they can be wrong about that, is it possible they could be wrong about at least one more virus? They could be wrong. Well, I, I don't even know. You haven't even defined what wrong is, but like, yeah, it's, yeah, maybe we have hammered it, hammered it enough. I think it's going to the forum, Alex. I think this is the, uh, <laughs> probably, we're probably going in circles if we, uh, probably. Okay. Um, yeah, I think we, we have kind of wrapped it up and you've kind of told us what's coming up on uh, deep state consciousness. Mm. So I'm sure you'll, you'll kind of find your way through it or I'll find my way through it and I'll come out and say there's no such thing as viruses. Maybe, who knows? Maybe I'll... I'll be writing a letter of apology and posting on the Skeptical Forum otherwise. Yeah, I'll hold up something to the screen. <laughs> well, thanks for doing this. I do think it's... Uh, it's a good dialogue to have. Thank you for having me on. I have found it insightful in ways that conversing in text. I've wondered at your position. And it's kind of, I think, clearer to me now the kind of underpinnings of our thinking that are different and why this arises. So it's been very insightful for me. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks again to Richard Cox for joining me today on Skeptico. Be sure to check out Deep State Consciousness podcast really are a lot of excellent, excellent interviews that he's done there. So we hammered this to death. Where did we wind up? The question I would tee up is, do you see why some people think the no virus thing is a psyop? I mean, it isn't even worth discussing whether it's potentially true, whether it's right. It's obviously crazy, just an inch or two above flat earth. But do you think it's a psyop? Let me know your thoughts. Track me down wherever you can. Skeptical Forum is great if you want to get there. Otherwise, just find me and let me know your thoughts. Love to hear from you. Until next time, take care and bye for now.